Greater than do not tell the world what you can do dash. Greater than show IT. Greater than the best compensation for doing things is the ability to do more. Greater than remember that when you make an appointment with another person you assume the responsibility of punctuality, and that you have not the right to be a single minute late. Greater than in every soul there has been deposited the seed of a great future, but that seed will never germinate, much less grow to maturity, except through the rendering of useful service. Greater than you are fortunate if you have learned the difference between temporary defeat and failure, more fortunate still, if you have learned the truth that the very seed of success is dormant in every defeat that you experience. Greater than is it not strange that we fear most that which never happens? That we destroy our initiative by the fear of defeat, when in reality, defeat is a most useful tonic and should be accepted as such. Greater than your work and mine are peculiarly akin, I am helping the laws of nature create more perfect specimens of vegetation, while you are using those same laws, through the law of success philosophy, to create more perfect specimens of thinkers. Greater than. Greater than Luther Burbank. Greater than no man can become a great leader of men unless he has the milk of human kindness in his own heart, and leads by suggestion and kindness, rather than by force. Greater than if you want a thing done well, call on some busy person to do it. Busy people are generally the most painstaking thorough in all they do. The power of habit. Having, myself, experienced all the difficulties that stand in the road of those who lack the understanding to make practical application of this great principle of auto-suggestion, let me take you a short way into the principle of habit, through the aid of which you may easily apply the principle of auto-suggestion in any direction and for any purpose whatsoever. Habit grows out of environment, out of doing the same thing or thinking the same thoughts or repeating the same words over and over again. Habit may be likened to the groove on a phonograph record, while the human mind may be likened to the needle that fits into that groove. When any habit has been well formed, through repetition of thought or action, the mind has a tendency to attach itself to and follow the course of that habit as closely as the phonograph needle follows the groove in the wax record. Habit is created by repeatedly directing one or more of the five senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and feeling, in a given direction. It is through this repetition principle that the injurious drug habit is formed. It is through this same principle that the desire for intoxicating drink is formed into a habit. After habit has been well established it will automatically control and direct our bodily activity, wherein may be found a thought that can be transformed into a powerful factor in the development of self-confidence. The thought is this, voluntarily, and by force if necessary, direct your efforts and your thoughts along a desired line until you have formed the habit that will lay hold of you and continue. Voluntarily, to direct your efforts along the same line. The object in writing out and repeating the self-confidence formula is to form the habit of making belief in yourself the dominating thought of your mind until that thought has been thoroughly embedded in your subconscious mind, through the principle of habit. You learn to write by repeatedly directing the muscles of your arm and hand over certain outlines known as letters, until finally you form the habit of tracing these outlines. Now you write with ease and rapidity, without tracing each letter slowly. Writing has become a habit with you. The principle of habit will lay hold of the faculties of your mind just the same as it will influence the physical muscles of your body, as you can easily prove by mastering and applying this lesson on self-confidence. Any statement that you repeatedly make to yourself, or any desire that you deeply plant in your mind through repeated statement, will eventually seek expression through your physical, outward bodily efforts. The principle of habit is the very foundation upon which this lesson on self-confidence is built, and if you will understand and follow the directions laid down in this lesson you will soon know more about the law of habit, from first-hand knowledge, than could be taught you by a thousand such lessons as this. You have but little conception of the possibilities which lie sleeping within you, awaiting but the awakening hand of vision to arouse you, 
and you will never have a better conception of those possibilities unless you develop sufficient self-confidence to lift. A home is something that cannot be bought. You can buy a house but only a woman can make of it a home. You above the commonplace influences of your present environment. The human mind is a marvelous, mysterious piece of machinery, a fact of which I was reminded a few months ago when I picked up Emerson's essays and reread his essay on spiritual loss. A strange thing happened. I saw in that essay, which I had read scores of times previously, much that I had never noticed before. I saw more in this essay than I had seen during previous readings because the unfoldment of my mind since the last reading had prepared me to interpret more. The human mind is constantly unfolding, like the petals of a flower, until it reaches the maximum of development. What this maximum is, where it ends, or whether it ends at all or not, are unanswerable questions, but the degree of unfoldment seems to vary according to the nature of the individual and the degree to which he keeps his mind at work. A mind that is forced or coaxed into analytical thought every day seems to keep on unfolding and developing greater powers of interpretation. Down in Louisville, Kentucky, lives Mr. Lee Cook, a man who has practically no legs and has to wheel himself around on a cart. In spite of the fact that Mr. Cook has been without legs since birth, he is the owner of a great industry and a millionaire through his own efforts. He has proved that a man can get along very well without legs if he has a well-developed self-confidence. In the city of New York one may see a strong able-bodied and able-headed young man, without legs, rolling himself down Fifth Avenue every afternoon. With cap in hand, begging for a living. His head is perhaps as sound and as able to think as the average. This young man could duplicate anything that Mr. Cook, of Louisville, has done, if he thought of himself as Mr. Cook thinks of himself. Henry Ford owns more millions of dollars than he will ever need or use. Not so many years ago, he was working as a laborer in a machine shop, with but little schooling and without capital. Scores of other men, some of them with better organized brains than his, worked near him. Ford threw off the poverty consciousness, developed confidence in himself, thought of success and attained it. Those who worked around him could have done as well had they thought as he did. Mila C. Jones, of Wisconsin, was stricken down with paralysis a few years ago. So bad was the stroke that he could not turn himself in bed or move a muscle of his body. His physical body was useless, but there was nothing wrong with his brain, so it began to function in earnest, probably for the first time in its existence. Lying flat on his back in bed, Mr. Jones made that brain create a definite purpose. That purpose was prosaic and humble enough in nature, but it was definite and it was a purpose, something that he had never known before. His definite purpose was to make pork sausage. Calling his family around him he told of his plans and began directing them and carrying the plans into action. With nothing to aid him except a sound mind and plenty of self-confidence, Mila C. Jones spread the name and reputation of Little Pig Sausage all over the United States, and accumulated a fortune besides. All this was accomplished after paralysis had made it impossible for him to work with his hands. Where thought prevails power may be found. Henry Ford has made millions of dollars and is still making millions of dollars each year because he believed in Henry Ford and transformed that belief into a definite purpose and backed that purpose with a definite plan. The other machinists who worked along with Ford, during the early days of his career, visioned nothing but a weekly pay envelope and that was all they ever got. They demanded nothing out of the ordinary of themselves. If you want to get more be sure to demand more of yourself. Notice that this demand is to be made on yourself. There comes to mind a well-known poem whose author expressed a great psychological truth. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it is almost certain you won't. If you think you'll lose you've lost, for out of the world we find. Success begins with a fellow's will, it's all in the state of mind. 
If you think you are outclassed, you are, you've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man, but sooner or late the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. It can do no harm if you commit this poem to memory and use it as a part of your working equipment in the development of self-confidence. Somewhere in your makeup there is a subtle something which, if it were roused by the proper outside influence, would carry you to heights of achievement such as you have never before anticipated. Just as a master player can take hold of a violin and cause that instrument to pour forth the most beautiful and entrancing strains of music, so is there some outside influence that can lay hold of your mind and cause you to go forth into the field of your chosen endeavor and play a glorious symphony of success. No man knows what hidden forces lie dormant within you. You, yourself, do not know your capacity for achievement, and you never will know until you come in contact with that particular stimulus which arouses you to greater action and extends your vision, develops your self-confidence and moves you with a deeper desire to achieve. It is not unreasonable to expect that some statement, some idea or some stimulating word of this reading course on the law of success will serve as the needed stimulus that will reshape your destiny and redirect your thoughts and energies along a pathway that will lead you, finally, to your coveted goal of life. It is strange, but true, that the most important turning points of life often come at the most unexpected times and in the most unexpected ways. I have in mind a typical example of how some of the seemingly unimportant experiences of life often turn out to be the most important of all, and I am relating this ease because it shows, also, what a man can accomplish when he awakens to a full understanding of the value of self-confidence. The incident to which I refer happened in the city of Chicago, while I was engaged in the work of character analysis. One day a tramp presented himself at my office and asked for an interview. As I looked up from my work and greeted him he said, I have come to see the man who wrote this little book, as he removed from his pocket a copy of a book entitled Self-Confidence, which I had written many years previously. It must have been the hand of fate, he continued, that slipped this book into my pocket yesterday afternoon, because I was about ready to go out there and punch a hole in Lake Michigan. I had about come to the conclusion that everything and everybody, including God, had it in for me until I read this book, and it gave me a new viewpoint and brought me the courage and the hope that sustained me through the night. I made up my mind that if I could see the man who wrote this book he could help me get on my feet again. Now, I am here and I would like to know what you can do for a man like me. While he was speaking I had been studying him from head to foot, and I am frank to admit that down deep in my heart I did not believe there was anything I could do for him, but I did not wish to tell him so. The glassy stare in his eyes, the lines of discouragement in his face, the posture of his body. The only man who makes no mistakes is the man who never does anything. Do not be afraid of mistakes providing you do not make the same one twice. Roosevelt. The ten days growth of beard on his face, the nervous manner about this man all conveyed to me the impression that he was hopeless, but I did not have the heart to tell him so, therefore I asked him to sit down and tell me his whole story. I asked him to be perfectly frank and tell me, as nearly as possible, just what had brought him down to the ragged edge of life. I promised him that after I had heard his entire story I would then tell him whether or not I could be of service to him. He related his story, in lengthy detail, the sum and substance of which was this, he had invested his entire fortune in a small manufacturing business. When the World War began in 1914, it was impossible for him to get the raw materials necessary in the operation of his factory, and he therefore failed. The loss of his money broke his heart and so disturbed his mind that he left his wife and children and became a tramp. He had actually brooded over his loss until he had reached the point at which he was contemplating suicide. After he had finished his story, I said to him, I have listened to you with a great deal of interest, and I wish that there was something which I could do to help you, but there is absolutely nothing. 
he became as pale as he will be when he is laid away in a coffin, and settled back in his chair and dropped his chin on his chest as much as to say, that settles it. I waited for a few seconds, then said. While there is nothing that I can do for you, there is a man in this building to whom I will introduce you, if you wish, who can help you regain your lost fortune and put you back on your feet. Again. These words had barely fallen from my lips when he jumped up, grabbed me by the hands and said, for God's sake lead me to this man. It was encouraging to note that he had asked this for God's sake. This indicated that there was still a spark of hope within his breast, so I took him by the arm and led him out into the laboratory where my psychological tests and character analysis were conducted, and stood with him in front of what looked to be a curtain over a door. I pulled the curtain aside and uncovered a tall looking glass in which he saw himself from head to foot. Pointing my finger at the glass I said. There stands the man to whom I promised to introduce you. There is the only man in this world who can put you back on your feet again, and unless you sit down and become acquainted with that man, as you never became acquainted with him before, you might just as well go on over and punch a hole in Lake Michigan, because you will be of no value to yourself or to the world until you know this man better. He stepped over to the glass, rubbed his hands over his bearded face, studied himself from head to foot for a few moments, then stepped back, dropped his head and began to weep. I knew that the lesson had been driven home, so I led him back to the elevator and sent him away. I never expected to see him again, and I doubted that the lesson would be sufficient to help him regain his place in the world, because he seemed to be too far gone for redemption. He seemed to be not only down, but almost out. A few days later I met this man on the street. His transformation had been so complete that I hardly recognized him. He was walking briskly, with his head tilted back. That old, shifting, nervous posture of his body was gone. He was dressed in new clothes from head to foot. He looked prosperous and he felt prosperous. He stopped me and related what had happened to bring about his rapid transformation from a state of abject failure to one of hope and promise. I was just on my way to your office, he explained, to bring you the good news. I went out the very day that I was in your office, a down and out tramp, and despite my appearance I sold myself at a salary of $3,000 a year. Think of it, man, $3,000 a year and my employer advanced me money enough with which to buy some new clothes, as you can see for yourself. He also advanced me some money to send home to my family, and I am once more on the road to success. It seems like a dream when I think that only a few days ago I had lost hope and faith and courage, and was actually contemplating suicide. I was coming to tell you that one of these days, when you are least expecting me, I will pay you another visit, and when I do, I will be a successful man. I will bring with me a check, signed in blank and made payable to you and you may fill in the amount because you have saved me from myself by introducing me to myself, that self which I never knew until you stood me in front of that looking glass and pointed out the real me. As that man turned and departed in the crowded streets of Chicago I saw, for the first time in my life, what strength and power and possibility lie hidden in the mind of the man who has never discovered the value of self-reliance. Then and there I made up my mind that I, too, would stand in front of that same looking glass and point an accusing finger at myself for not having discovered the lesson which I had helped another to learn. I did stand before that same looking glass, and as I did so I then and there fixed in my mind, as my definite purpose in life, the determination to help men and women discover the forces that lie sleeping within them. The book you hold in your hands is evidence that my definite purpose is being carried out. The man whose story I have related is now the president of one of the largest and most successful concerns of its kind in America with a business that extends from coast to coast and from Canada to Mexico. A short while after the incident just related, a woman came to my office for personal analysis. She was then a teacher in the Chicago public schools. I gave her an analysis chart and asked her to fill it out. 
she had been at work on the chart but a few minutes when she came back to my desk, handed back the chart and said, I do not believe I will fill this out. I asked her why she had decided not to fill out the chart and she replied, to be perfectly frank with you, one of the questions in this chart put me to thinking and I now know what is wrong with me, therefore I feel it unnecessary to pay you a fee to analyze me. With that the woman went away and I did not hear from her for two years. She went to New York City, became a writer of advertising copy for one of the largest agencies in the country and her income at the time she wrote me was $10,000 a year. This woman sent me a check to cover the cost of my analysis fee, because she felt that the fee had been earned, even though I did not render her the service that I usually render my clients. It is impossible for anyone to foretell what seemingly insignificant incident may lead to an important turning point in one's career, but there is no denying the fact that these turning points may be more readily recognized by those who have well-rounded out confidence in themselves. One of the irreparable losses to the human race lies in the lack of knowledge that there is a definite method through which self-confidence can be developed in any person of average intelligence. What an immeasurable loss to civilization that young men and women are not taught this known method of developing self-confidence before they complete their schooling, for no one who lacks faith in himself is really educated in the proper sense of the term. Oh, what glory and satisfaction would be the happy heritage of the man or woman who could pull aside the curtain of fear that hangs over the human race and shuts out the sunlight of understanding that self-confidence brings, wherever it is in evidence. Where fear controls, noteworthy achievement becomes an impossibility, a fact which brings to mind the definition of fear, as stated by a great philosopher. Fear is the dungeon of the mind into which it runs and hides and seeks seclusion. Fear brings on superstition and superstition is the dagger with which hypocrisy assassinates the soul. In front of the typewriter on which I am writing. Love, beauty, joy and worship are forever building, tearing down and rebuilding the foundation of each man's soul. The manuscripts for this reading course hangs a sign with the following wording, in big letters. Day by day in every way I am becoming more successful. A skeptic who read that sign asked if I really believe that stuff and I replied, of course not. All it ever did for me was to help me get out of the coal mines, where I started as a laborer, and find a place in the world in which I am serving upwards of 100,000 people, in whose minds I am planning the same positive thought that this sign brings out, therefore, why should I believe in it? As this man started to leave he said, well, perhaps there is something to this sort of philosophy, after all, for I have always been afraid that I would be a failure, and so far my fears have been thoroughly realized. You are condemning yourself to poverty, misery and failure, or you are driving yourself on toward the heights of great achievement, solely by the thoughts you think. If you demand success of yourself and back up this demand with intelligent action you are sure to win. Bear in mind, though, that there is a difference between demanding success and just merely wishing for it. You should find out what this difference is, and take advantage of it. Do you remember what the Bible says, look it up, somewhere in the book of Matthew, about those who have faith as a grain of mustard seed? Go at the task of developing self-confidence with at least that much faith if not more. Never mind what they will say because you might as well know that they will be of little aid to you in your climb up the mountainside of life toward the object of your definite purpose. You have within you all the power you need with which to get whatever you want or need in this world, and about the best way to avail yourself of this power is to believe in yourself. Know thyself, man, know thyself. This has been the advice of the philosophers all down the ages. When you really know yourself you will know that there is nothing foolish about hanging a sign in front of you that reads like this, day by day in every way I am becoming more successful, with due apologies to the Frenchman who made this motto popular. I am not afraid to place this sort of suggestion in front of my desk, and, what is more to the point, I am not afraid to believe that it will influence me so that I will become a more positive and aggressive human being. 
More than 25 years ago I learned my first lesson in self-confidence building. One night I was sitting before an open fireplace, listening to a conversation between some older men, on the subject of capital and labor. Without invitation I joined in the conversation and said something about employers and employees settling their differences on the golden rule basis. My remarks attracted the attention of one of the men, who turned to me, with a look of surprise on his face and said. Why, you are a bright boy, and if you would go out and get a schooling you would make your mark in the world. Those remarks fell on fertile ears, even though that was the first time anyone had ever told me that I was bright, or that I might accomplish anything worth. While in life. The remark put me to thinking, and the more I allowed my mind to dwell upon that thought the more certain I became that the remark had back of it a possibility. It might be truthfully stated that whatever service I am rendering the world and whatever good I accomplish, should be credited to the offhand remark. Suggestions such as this are often powerful, and nonetheless so when they are deliberate and self-expressed. Go back, now, to the self-confidence formula and master it, for it will lead you into the powerhouse of your own mind, where you will tap a force that can be made to carry you to the very top of the ladder of success. Others will believe in you only when you believe in yourself. They will tune in on your thoughts and feel toward you just as you feel toward yourself. The law of mental telepathy takes care of this. You are continuously broadcasting how you think of yourself, and if you have no faith in yourself others will pick up the vibrations of your thoughts and mistake them for their own. Once understand the law of mental telepathy and you will know why self-confidence is the second of the 15 laws of success. You should be cautioned, however, to learn the difference between self-confidence, which is based upon sound knowledge of what you know and what you can do, and egotism, which is only based upon what you wish you knew or could do. Learn the difference between these two terms or you will make yourself boresome, ridiculous and annoying to people of culture and understanding. Self-confidence is something which should never be proclaimed or announced except through intelligent performance of constructive deeds. If you have self-confidence those around you will discover this fact. Let them make the discovery. They will feel proud of their alertness in having made the discovery, and you will be free from the suspicion of egotism. Opportunity never stalks the person with a highly developed state of egotism, but brickbats and ugly remarks do. Opportunity forms affinities much more easily and quickly with self-confidence than it does with egotism. Self-praise is never a proper measure of self-reliance. Bear this in mind and let your self-confidence speak only through the tongue of constructive service rendered without fuss or flurry. Self-confidence is the product of knowledge. Know yourself, know how much you know, and how little, why you know it, and how you are going to use it. Four flushers come to grief, therefore, do not pretend to know more than you actually do know. There's no use of pretense, because any educated person will measure you quite accurately after hearing you speak for three minutes. What you really are will speak so loudly that what you claim you are will not be heard. If you heed this warning the last four pages of this one lesson may mark one of the most important turning points of your life. Believe in yourself, but do not tell the world what you can do show IT. You are now ready for lesson four, which will take you the next step up the ladder of success. Discontentment. And after the lesson visit with the author. The marker stands at the entrance gate of life and writes poor fool on the brow of the wise man and poor sinner on the brow of the saint. The supreme mystery of the universe is life. We come here without our consent, from whence we know not. We go away without our consent, whither, we know not. We are eternally trying to solve this great riddle of life, and, for what purpose and to what end? That we are placed on this earth for a definite reason there can be no doubt by any thinker. May it not be possible that the power which placed us here will know what to do with us when we pass on beyond the great divide. Would it not be a good plan to give the Creator who placed us here on earth, credit for having enough intelligence to know what to do with us after we pass on, 
or, should we assume the intelligence and the ability to control the future life in our own way? May it not be possible that we can cooperate with the Creator very intelligently by assuming to control our conduct. On this earth to the end that we may be decent to one another and do all the good we can in all the ways we can during this life, leaving the hereafter to one who probably knows, better than we, what is best for us? The artist has told a powerful story in the picture at the top of this page. From birth until death the mind is always reaching out for that which it does not possess. The little child, playing with its toys on the floor, sees another child with a different sort of toy and immediately tries to lay hands on that toy. The female child, grown tall, believes the other woman's clothes more becoming than her own and sets out to duplicate them. The male child, grown tall, sees another man with a bigger collection of railroads or banks or merchandise and says to himself, how fortunate. How fortunate. How can I separate him from his belongings? F. W. Woolworth, the 5 and 10 cent store king, stood on 5th Avenue in New York City and gazed upward at the tall metropolitan building and said, how wonderful. I will build one much taller. The crowning achievement of his life was measured by the Woolworth building. That building stands as a temporary symbol of man's nature to excel the handiwork of other men. A monument to the vanity of man, with but little else to justify its existence. The little ragged newsboy on the street stands, with wide open mouth, and envies the businessman as. He alights from his automobile at the curb and starts into his office. How happy I would be, the newsboy says to himself, if I owned a Lizzie. And, the businessman seated at his desk inside, thinks how happy he would be if he could add another million dollars to his already overswollen bankroll. The grass is always sweeter on the other side of the fence, says the jackass, as he stretches his neck in the attempt to get to it. Turn a crowd of boys into an apple orchard and they will pass by the nice mellow apples on the ground. The red, juicy ones hanging dangerously high in the top of the tree look much more tempting, and up the tree they will go. The married man takes a sheepish glance at the daintily dressed ladies on the street and thinks how fortunate he would be if his wife were as pretty as they. Perhaps she is much prettier, but he misses that beauty because well, because the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Most divorce cases grow out of man's tendency to climb the fence into the other fellow's pastures. Happiness is always just around the bend, always in sight but just out of reach. Life is never complete, no matter what we have or how much of it we possess. One thing calls for something else to go with it. Milady buys a pretty hat. She must have a gown to match it. That calls for new shoes and hose and gloves, and other accessories that run into a big bill. Far beyond her husband's means. Man longs for a home just a plain little house. Setting off in the edge of the woods. He builds it, but. It is not complete, he must have shrubbery and flowers and landscaping to go with it. Still it is not complete, he must have a beautiful fence around it, with a gravel driveway. That calls for a motor car and a garage in which to house it. All these little touches have been added, but to no avail. The place is now too small. He must have a house with more rooms. The Ford Coupe must be replaced by a Cadillac sedan, so there will be room for company in the cross-country tours. On and on the story goes, ad infinitum. The young man receives a salary sufficient to keep him and his family fairly comfortable. Then comes a promotion and an advance in salary of $1,000 a year. Does he lay the extra thousand dollars away in the savings account and continue living as before? He does nothing of the sort. Immediately he must trade the old car in for a new one. A porch must be added to the house. The wife needs a new wardrobe. The table must be set with better food and more of it. Pity is poor, groaning stomach, at the end of the year is he better off with the increase? He is nothing of the sort. The more he gets the more he wants, 
and the rule applies to the man with millions the same as to the man with but a few thousands. The young man selects the girl of his choice, believing he cannot live without her. After he gets her he is not sure that he can live with her. If a man remains a bachelor he wonders why he is so stupid as to deprive himself of the joys of married life. If he marries he wonders how she happened to catch him off guard long enough to harpoon him. And the god of destiny cries out oh fool, zero fool. You are damned if you do and you are damned if you don't. At every crossroad of life the imps of discontentment stand in the shadows of the background, with a grin of mockery on their faces, crying out take the road of your own choice. We will get you in the end. At last man becomes disillusioned and begins to learn that happiness and contentment are not of this world. Then begins the search for the password that will open the door to him in some world of which he knows not. Surely there must be happiness on the other side of the great divide. In desperation his tired, careworn heart turns to religion for hope and encouragement. But, his troubles are not over, they are just starting. Come into our tent and accept our creed, says one sect, and you may go straight to heaven after death. Poor man hesitates, looks and listens. Then he hears the call of another brand of religion whose leader says, Stay out of the other camp or you'll go straight to hell. They only sprinkle water on your head, but we push you all the way under, thereby ensuring you safe passage into the land of promise. In the midst of sectarian claims and counterclaims poor man becomes undecided. Not knowing whether to turn this way or that, he wonders which brand of religion offers the safest passageway, until hope vanishes. Myself when young. Did eagerly frequent. Doctor and saint and heard great argument. About it and about, but evermore. Came out by the same door where and I went. Always seeking but never finding, thus might be described man's struggle for happiness and contentment. He tries one religion after another, finally joining the big church which the world has named the damned. His mind becomes an eternal question mark, searching hither and yon for an answer to the questions, whence and whither? The worldly hope men set their hearts upon. Turns ashes or it prospers, and anon. Like snow upon the desert's dusty face. Lighting a little hour or two is gone. Life is an everlasting question mark. That which we want most is always in the embryonic distance of the future. Our power to acquire is always a decade or so behind our power to desire. And, if we catch up with the thing we want we no longer want it. Fortunate is the young woman who learns this great truth and keeps her lover always guessing, always on the defensive lest he may lose her. Our favorite author is a hero and a genius until we meet him in person and learn the sad truth that, after all, he is only a man. How often must we learn this lesson? Men cease to interest us when we find their limitations. The only sin is limitation. As soon as you once come up with a man's limitations, it is all over with him. Emerson. How beautiful the mountain yonder in the distance but, the moment we draw near it we find it to be nothing but a wretched collection of rocks and dirt and trees. Out of this truth grew the oft-repeated adage familiarity breeds contempt. Beauty and happiness and contentment are states of mind. They can never be enjoyed except through vision of the afar. The most beautiful painting of Rembrandt becomes a mere smudge of daubed paint if we come too near it. Destroy the hope of unfinished dreams in man's heart and he is finished. The moment a man ceases to cherish the vision of future achievement he is through. Nature has built man so that his greatest and only lasting happiness is that which he feels in the pursuit of some yet unattained object. Anticipation is sweeter than realization. That which is at hand does not satisfy. The only enduring satisfaction is that which comes to the person who keeps alive in his heart the hope of future achievement. When that hope dies right finis across the human heart. Life's greatest inconsistency is the fact that most of that which we believe is not true. 
Russell Conwell wrote the most popular lecture ever delivered in the English language. He called it Acres of Diamonds. The central idea of the lecture was the statement that one need not seek opportunity in the distance, that opportunity may be found in the vicinity of one's birth. Perhaps. But, how many believe it? Opportunity may be found wherever one really looks for it, and nowhere else. To most men the picking looks better on the other side of the fence. How futile to urge one to try out one's luck in the little hometown when it is man's nature to look for opportunity in some other locality. Do not worry because the grass looks sweeter on the other side of the fence. Nature intended it so. Thus does she allure us and groom us for the lifelong task of growth through struggle. Greater than the highest compact we can make with our fellow is, let there be truth between us two forevermore. Greater than. Greater than Emerson.